Well, this morning we're actually we're going to be back in our series on our God is awesome, and we're going to be discussing this morning the supreme word of God. So, if you turn to Second Timothy, Second Timothy chapter three, Father, we look to you for mercy. That as we open your word, we know that it is powerful and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, able to divide between bone and marrow, soul and spirit. I'm so thankful that you give it to us. You have given it to us. And I ask this morning that you'd help us to see and understand and come to believe and to know and confidently rest upon your word because your word is awesome. Work in us mightily this morning by your spirit, through your word, we ask it in Jesus. Amen. I think when it comes to the, the talking about the supreme word of God, I think there's some things that are somewhat obvious to anybody who's ever been a Christian. We know that God spoke. And God created all things and upholds all things by the word of his power. Now, it's pretty spectacular, and we know there's, it's powerful when someone can speak and, you know, things, cosmoses, universes, earth, everything's created. I mean, it's one thing, we think of power, and you think of this, think of a king. When you think of a king in terms of his word of power, what gives him power is he can sit on his throne and give nods and say yes or no, thumbs up or thumbs down, or is in that uh, that funny Budweiser commercial, dilly dilly. Um, <laughs> the authority and power comes from this ability, and we all know it's it's scary when somebody can give a word and your life or your death hinges upon that word. We understand? So like words have power. And in your own life, words have either really built you up and strengthened you, or words have crushed you. Can you think of conversations or something somebody has said before that to this very day, it could be 20, 30, 40, 50 years later, it just sticks with you? Can't get rid of it? On the flip side, someone said something to you, you know, incredibly encouraging. It's almost life-changing. Those words stay with you, and they change the course of your life. So on a, on a very microscopic scale, we understand the power of words. But God's word is fundamentally different in that his word is, has ultimate power to create out of nothing, bam, a cosmos, simply because he told it to be. And then he upholds that. His word is what holds it all up. Because if he tells it to stay, like why does this spinning globe stay where it's at? Because he told it to stay. I mean, scientists will try to do their theories and spin their webs, but ultimately it's because God said that's why. And you know, I can't tell you how upsetting it is nowadays to watch news broadcasters, interviews, and almost every other form of media out there as they discuss and debate this world and the things in it that are happening. Because in almost every case, it is without any consideration at all of God and his, his word. 
completely irrelevant to them. If God does become a part of the conversation somehow, he is talked about in reference to someone's personal beliefs. Oh, that's nice that you believe that. Now let's get back to the real issue on the table. He's talked about as the one, you know, who, yeah, sure, he, he, he might say he's over all things, <clears throat> but he's not, the, he's not the one whom we must listen to or submit to. It's just your, that's your God. So have your little God. Let's get back to conversation. And even when Christians talk about topics in the public media, they usually seek often to accept this paradigm, to accept this stance. And, and a large portion of their argument they use is, is scientifically based because what they're thinking of is they know that they don't accept this standard. They don't accept this God, but what they do accept, the God they will serve, the God they will worship is science. So if you can prove it scientifically, then they will bow to it and say, yes, that is indeed true. Who is the wise, wise sage of our age? It's the one who can give some clinical data. You know, the problem that we're facing today is a problem of nerve to stand on God's word as the ultimate authority. Because Everybody knows that if you do that, and the moment you do that in the public square, you are going to be laughed at, ridiculed, mocked, and thrown out. What a joke. This guy still believes this archaic book, and he thinks it's from God. Thinks it's from God. He alone has the truth. How arrogant is that guy? Listen to him talk. Like, he thinks he's the only one with a corner of truth. How arrogant he says, these are the words of God. And so they laugh and they ridicule. And it's getting worse and worse. We're living in an age where it's not going to be long. And if anybody's willing to stand up and, and say, thus says the Lord, you're going to have to say some things that are going to get you in serious trouble. And the, I think we can all see the trajectory. We can all see what's happening. So therefore, Christians... You know, we have to understand, and in saying this stuff even, it's not that science is somehow bad. I believe that faithful Christians are the ones who with integrity can actually do science because they believe the God of this created this world. They believe that, that God actually created the cells and the structures and the DNAs and everything else in this world. All of it was created by him, and that actually in pursuing these things and seeking these things and trying to understand these things, we can actually see how God works and moves in the world. However, what we never, ever, ever do is allow that to trump God in his word. As if somehow God is bound. Oh no, by my own laws I made. And this is the problem the world has with miracles. This is why miracles are laughable. Because it goes contrary to their God's rules. Their God is the God of science. right? These, these magical rules over here. And every single miracle, that's the point of them, they break scientific laws. So when Jesus is walking on water, he's breaking every single scientific law about water. But that's precisely the point. At that moment, who is God? Who is Lord? Are the laws of water, do they, are they over Jesus? Does he have to say, oh no, I must submit to you, I must swim as well? No, he says, 
Watch this. You think in your mind, and you know almost every single time that water has certain properties. And what you're about to see in your mind is going to blow your mind because it's absolutely impossible according to your structure. Water turns into concrete. How's he doing that? Because these laws serve me. I don't serve them. That's how. And so this is, the, this is really the dilemma. This is the problem. When you see people, in the, especially in the scientific realm, talk about God's word and stuff like that, they're always trying to get us to submit to them, to submit to these laws. Like say, okay, how is it possible then if, if you've got a star trillions of miles away and it, it, it's, it's light to get to earth takes billions of years that we see its light. That means, therefore, the only possible conclusion is this, that, that we've been here billions of years, and that's how long it takes to get here. Wrong. See this in the public square. God spoke. So when God says, let there be light, guess what? There's light. And it doesn't matter if it's trillions of miles away, because those rules, those laws, he set them up. But he breaks them however he wishes. And so here's the thing. It's a fundamental submission to this God and to his word. It's final and it's authoritative. But the world hates God, rejects God, denies God, tries to throw him out constantly. And many of us are capitulating to this. So this morning, I want to strengthen our faith in just this word of God to realize that this, this is the word and we boldly must stand on it and rejoice in the fact that we could be counted amongst those who get rejected, ridiculed, mocked, and thrown out for it. There needs to be a shift of paradigm. It really does. First thing I want us to see this morning is that the word of God, it came, this word came through man, but it's not from man. And that's an important distinction to make. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 15 through 17, Paul is giving some final words to his faithful disciple, Timothy. And he says this, From childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, with the scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Here we see in this text that this, these are the sacred writings, Paul says, and then every bit of them, all of them, are God-breathed, breathed out by God. Now the question is, what does that mean? What does it mean that these scriptures, he says, these are all breathed out by God? In essence, it's saying that these are, these are the words of God. These aren't man's words, even though they come through man. I think a great passage to help understand how this works is 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 21, where he says, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So there you go. That's how, that's how it works. How did God breathe it out? How did it come about? None of it came by the will of man. None of it. But by the will of God, as God breathed it out, as God worked through the Spirit in people's lives, it got worked out. 
the best way to, I think, to understand this or think about it, I've shared this experience with you before, but it's probably very similar, probably the best analogy I could think of, I'm sure there's better ones, but it's the best one I could think of, is when we've ever had an experience where we're talking to somebody about the gospel, or in my case, sometimes even when I'm preaching, it's like I become a man possessed. And it's almost as if it's a little bit of an outer body experience. The Lord takes over. And the words are coming, and I'm thinking, wow, that's pretty good. (laughs) Where did that come from? Scriptures are coming. I've never memorized these scriptures before, but I I quote them verbatim. And I'm all honest. I'm not telling you that, oh, I didn't know where that came from. But that's the experience. I'm like, wow the exact scripture I needed, the illustration, the example, and the clarity, and that I can actually, as I'm in the middle of it, I'm just completely almost like a passenger holding on to what's happening. It's, it's, and if you've ever had this experience, it doesn't happen all the time. I wish it was every, I would just stand up here and I'd say, God, go. <laughs> and that would just be a total takeover, right? But I think that if you've had moments like that, you're experiencing kind of what it was like, what he means by when God, when, when the Spirit is the one in control, the Spirit takes over and the Spirit is actually inspiring, so to speak. We talk about this in the anointing of the Spirit on someone's ministry. Someone, uh, there's people whose ministry, when they, when they minister, you get a sense of like, whoa, the Spirit of God is upon them. And they'll even describe to you and tell you this. It's, it, it's, it's a little bit like a takeover where God is using them and possessing them and, and just giving them words to say and thoughts to think. And, and it's just, it's God. And, and so I think that's a good way to think about how did this happen? When he says God breathed, and when he says it's not by the will of man, but the will of God by the Spirit, this writers were the, in the same way. I think Joel and I were just talking this morning how you know, some of these passages are absolutely profound. He mentioned John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And, and by all, all things were created by the Word and through the Word. And so he goes on in John 1 to talk about like this. And it's just a very, very profound, profound, deep statement. And there's several through in scriptures like this. This is someone whose the Spirit is working in and through and giving them. It's just like, and he's probably going, wow. <laughs> That, that's actually unbelievable. That, and it's a very humbling feeling. You don't get the feeling like you did it. You get the sensation that you know you didn't do it. So it's like, whoa, God just is working through me. So this is how I think we need to think about it when you hear, like, how does inspiration work? You know, it's not like they weren't going, whoa, something's got a control of my hand. I don't know what's happening. You know, and, and it wasn't like, sometimes God would, would speak, but often even when you think about God speaks, he would speak through visions and dreams. But very, very rarely was it like, hello, Dean, right, get your pen quick. And then dictation, right? Write this down. So, and that's the thing. I think often we think of, oh, if this was God's word, if this were God's word, what would he do? Well, we could say if this fell from heaven and nobody's like this mysterious book, right? And then you open it and the light starts shining and it had all this supernatural like woo stuff going on. We could say people might all of a sudden the signs might be pointing to the fact that this is God's word. 
But that's not how God communicates. It's not how he relates to us in any way. God speaks to us through prophets, through creation, through circumstances, but above all, through this written word, how he inspires his his authors to write. And he's going to, and actually, and it's living and active. So it's, it, this isn't a dead word. It's not like this old historical document. You could pick this thing up this afternoon and go for a read and all of a sudden go, whoa, whoa. And it, you're on, next thing you know, you're on your face saying, oh, oh, oh Lord, forgive me because he's convicted you or he's just, he's revealed something in your own personal life or he's, he's, said something to you that was just really, really profound, whatever it is. And it doesn't always happen. It's not like every single time, oh, I hope my, here come my devotions. This is going to be awesome. You know, it's, it's not like that either. When God's working, God does what God does when God wants to do it. And so that's one of the, the things about him that he delights in because his ways are higher than our ways. And his thoughts higher than our thoughts. And so he's not like a man, and he's not easily containable. So he doesn't, if you think you have them all figured out and pinned down and got it all, you know, this is, this is exactly how it works. You have your formula. Be sure that he's going to mess with your formula. Because uh, he, he doesn't like it when we try. And this is what we're constantly trying to do. We want to have everything figured out. Because the moment you have it figured out, guess what you feel like? Like you're in control. And God says, no, I, you being in control and that feeling is just nothing but arrogant pride. What you, the sense you have to get is that I'm in control. God wants me, us to trust him. And our confidence, not that being that we're in control, our confidence needs to be that he's in control. Because his word, he's spoken. That's where he wants to, us to be at. So I think that when we, we think about God's word, how does God communicate to us? Well, primarily he communicates through these written words that he had his people write down. And this is a living and active word that he speaks to us through this. So if you want to know what God's saying to you, God, what are you saying? You know, you don't have to go on some long trip somewhere and spend time alone and expect something from heaven. Get into the word. Get into the word. God speaks through it. Dwell in it. If you spend a lot of time in this, this thing is going to shake your world up. I have not known one person uh, that has not spent significant amount of time in the Word who's not a, a different person. It dramatically impacts their life. And little time in the Word, little impact in life is often what, it, what you can notice. I think Spurgeon once said, uh, a tattered Bible is usually the sign of a non-tattered life. And it's often true. How, how well you're doing and how much God is really ministering to you and working into you is often in direct correlation to how much time you spend in the Word because it's living and active and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And you think of that expression, sharper than any two-edged sword. And, and he goes on to explain what it can do, how surgical it is. Well, what surgical knife could ever divide between bone and marrow? Like, because where the one ends and the other begins is really confusing. But it's able to do it, unlike we couldn't do it. Now, what surgical tool could go in and divide between soul and spirit? Oh, 
Jeez, we can't even get our heads around that, let alone take a knife and cut between it. That's what the word can do. The word is powerful and active, and it's so sharp it can get in there and, and do business with us. You know, in case you wonder if these scriptures, you know, someone might say, okay, Dean, I get how they came about, and you're saying inspiration, but the, the thing, question I have is like, how do you know, can you know this is the word of God? Is there any proof? Yes, there is. And the proof, it has its own proof, its own internal witness. And the primary internal witness to it, I've mentioned this a few weeks back, is the fact that when God, God specifically prophesies, prophecy, he tells what's going to happen, and then it happens. And this is the, this is the, this is the proof within itself that this is indeed the word of God, because no one, nowhere, at any time, has ever been able to do this. And in fact, God puts this up as, uh, as the test. If you recall being read this morning in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 21 through 22, he says, and if you say in your heart, how may we know that the Lord uh, has that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. Don't fear him. Those aren't the words of God. So what's the test? How can you know if this is the word of God? Well, if he says something's going to happen and it happens, that's how. And why is that? You name anybody or anything else that can control and determine the future. (laughs) Nobody, no thing, nowhere. We know that the only one who could ever do that would be God, the one who actually sees all things, knows all things, and decrees all things. A person that's like, that's one of the most profound things you can think of is to predict the future. In fact, if men even get close, they're almost seen as gods. Because it's kind of like, whoa! We know intuitively that that's, that's the one thing that's off limits for every single other creature is actually to know how, what the future is. It's kind of, it's the litmus test, if you will. But you know, even even close, moderate, kind of like vague accuracy is actually um, pretty revered. The one person in probably the last several hundred years, few hundred years, that has been made a handful of predictions that people have gotten really excited about and kind of like, whoa, this is this is pretty amazing. You probably all have heard of him, I'm sure, is Nostradamus. Nostradamus is like famous for his predictions, right? But uh, there are a handful of his predictions that actually, and just a handful, that do seem to correspond to big significant events. But they are so vaguely worded that they could be just as easily used for other similar events. They could be taken in several actually different directions. Because his predictions are like horoscopes. You ever look at a horoscope or like the, you know, the fortune cookie? It's vague in general enough that Boy, it can grab a lot of stuff. You know, even it says stuff, things will go well for you today. So now you're looking and, you know, one, one or two things went well. And it was true. <laughs> and so it's like, wow, these things have something going on, you know. 
And that's, that's how we're really weird about this kind of stuff. We feel like if there's any sense of somebody being able to somehow predict the future, we're instantly like, whoa, whoa, this is pretty intense. This is, this, this is at a level, a whole new level. And this is why people get kind of really carried away with Nostradamus because, you know, he's, he's gotten close enough that he kind of freaks people out. In uh, Nostradamus Bibliomancer, The Man, The Myth, The Truth, biographer Peter uh, Lemzire concludes that Nostradamus believed that history repeats itself. He actually had a philosophy of how things worked in the world. And he used this technique of projecting past events into the future in order to make realistic sounding claims. This kind of, this was part of his technique. So here's an, I'm going to give you an example of one of his predictions that a lot of people said this, this was the prediction of 9-11. I don't know if you've heard this one before or not, but here's how, here's how it goes. Earth-shaking fire from the center of the earth will cause tremors around the new city. Two great rocks will war for a long time. Then Erethusa will redden a new river. Ooh. So what you have here are vague, very vague, unclear descriptions written almost like poetry. It's kind of very poetic, image-based, it's om- but it almost feels a little bit code-based as well. Like it's almost like a riddle, right? And that's just how he, a lot of his stuff is written, almost riddly in a sense, how it sounds. And because of that, they lend themselves to any big event that involves, a, this particular one involves a significant city that has tremors, a fire, two great objects, blood, and a river. You put those things together and you're like, Starts to really feel the strong connections, like this is it, right? And this is the, this is where his power came from, his ability to do this. He actually held people spellbound because he would, he could make connections. And it's not, we're thinking, okay, two great big rocks, those are the two twin towers and fire. Yeah, there was fire and the city. It's not necessarily a new city, but it's new enough and relative. Um, <laughs> And yeah, when the planes hit it, there was a tremor. That, see, there's a tremor, you know, and so we're making these connections. And as, as people were addicted to making these connections, case in point, when your favorite sports team wins, you will take notice of what you were wearing. And now you're afraid to change next time. So next time you're thinking, you're going to put on the socks and you're going, ooh, I wore those socks last time. Put those socks on. What? And then, and then so you go like this, and, and people, we will hold on to these. We become superstitious really quick because we like to look for things that might predict the future because it feels like that's, that's where the power is at. We know that there's a, there's a cosmic God who's in control of all things, and you almost feel like you can somehow, maybe we found the secret pathway in to the future. Yeah. <laughs> so... Do you realize that Nostradamus is really the best example we have? Like, this is as close as we can come to somebody being able to predict the future. But this is why God said, what, remember what we read in Deuteronomy? Here's a simple test. If it comes to pass, he's a prophet. Believe him. If it doesn't, he's false. He's not. Don't believe him. And God's like, full-on confident. There it is. Because there's just no possible way anybody could ever do this. And, and the world... Over and over again, people have tried, and they try all kinds of tricks and schemes. And there are tricks and schemes that can deceive people quite easily. 
This is why even in that text it talks about the soothsayers and the witchcraft and all these, all that whole group of people are all into schemes and plans. They have like, either you can go YouTube and watch this. There's techniques to all this stuff. Like, and, and it starts to freak people out. But he's like, don't be afraid of them because here's a, here's a test, a litmus test. Can they predict the future? Now, let's put the litmus test up against God's word. If this is God's word, the greatest internal evidence is that he speaks and foretells future events and they happen as he said they were going to happen. And I, I, I honestly don't have the time this morning. There are so many. There are hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of prof- prophetic statements in here that are actually historically documented and verified even outside of the scriptures that these indeed happened. If one of them happened, two, you start to go, whoa. Two, you're thinking, okay, we got something here. Three, I think there's probably no question because I don't think any, but no one's going to, I mean, you might fluke out every now and then and think, okay, you got a fluky one there. You just somehow, you know, events happen and you somehow nailed it. But not hundred after hundreds and hundreds. And I'm just going to go really quickly over just some. There's over 300 prophetic statements connected to the coming of Messiah. And this morning, I just want to, touch on a few just to see how how many there are and some of them aren't directly like in saying um there's there's one coming and so this one coming has to fit a certain aspect of it for example it says there's one coming that will be born of the seed of the woman genocide genesis 3:15 and this one he, this is coming he's going to crush the head of the serpent now we just what we know from that is there's one coming and he will be born of the seed of a woman so, okay, check. Okay, he'll be born of the seed of a woman. Now, does this happen? Was Jesus born of the seed of a woman? Yes, we know he was. He was to be the seed through which Abraham, the promise to Abraham, this, this seed of Abraham, and through this seed that comes through the line of Abraham would bless all the nations of the earth, Genesis 12, 3. He was to be the son of Jacob, Genesis 35, 10. He was to be the son of David, 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 13. He was to be of the line of Jesse, Isaiah 11.1. 1. He was to be born of a virgin, Isaiah 7.14. He was to be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5.2. He was to be presented with gifts from kings, Psalm 72.10. He was to be seen, uh, sorry, he was to have the Spirit come down and rest upon him, Isaiah 11.2. He was to be preceded by a messenger, Isaiah 43 and Malachi 3.1. His ministry was to begin in Galilee, Isaiah 9.1. He was to open the eyes of the blind, the ears of the deaf, and make the lame walk, Isaiah 35, 5. He was to t- teach in parables, Psalm 78, 2. He was to enter Jerusalem riding on the colt of a donkey, Zechariah 9, 9. He was to be rejected by his people, but become the chief cornerstone, Psalm 118, 22. And we haven't even gotten to the prophecies of his death, resurrection, or ascension, and glory. And those are, this just, I'm telling you, I'm just taking a little sliver out. To, to show you that there's prophecy after prophecy. And then a few weeks back, if you remember, we went through even that prophetic statement in, uh, I believe it was in Isaiah, about Babylon. And that right there, there were like 13 prophetic statements that all became specifically historically fulfilled. So the whole scriptures, this is the point of it, and God continually, he, he gives words to his prophets and it proves it. You want to know? You really want proof? Go. And we all know, all humanity knows that if it's to prove this is the word of God, what's the only thing that could do? He could say, predict future events and they happen as he said they were going to happen. That's a definer right there. And that's exactly what happens. 
That's exactly what the scriptures are filled with. And to deny this and to not have to deal with this or to reject this or just go la 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 and like get it away from me, the evidence is plain and clear. It's right there. Look at it. This is the word of God. And you know, here's the, you want to also be blown away? All of this, and you've got over 40, you have 40 authors, 66 books written over 1500 years with one through line story that's all connected. That's an impossibility right there. How can you have take 1,500 years, take 40 offers, authors, 66 books, and write this one cohesive unit that has one through line? It's from beginning to end. It's anticipation. So this creation of this Garden of Eden, and it's this anticipation that this one would come all the way through. This one would come who would deliver his people and bring them into this paradise and ends in Revelation with the Garden Paradise completely and fully restored. It's just mind-blowing. It has its own internal witness. This is indeed the Word of God. But you know something else is so amazing? What, something that this Word does, which no other Word can do, is this Word has transforming power. 2 Timothy 3 15 through 17, I remember we just read it earlier, and it says that from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through Christ Jesus. And he goes on to say that it's all God-breathed, and that because it's God-breathed, it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. This word is active. This word, this word does things in people's lives. It transforms Drug addicts have been cured through it, homosexuals set free by it, derelicts and deadbeats transformed by it, hardened criminals reformed by it, sinners rebuked by it, and hate turned to love by it. It has truly transformed. It transforms people's lives. I can testify to you. Here's, here's my own personal testimony. This is what happened to me experientially. Before I came to know God, I, he started working in me and drawing me towards himself. And I started to, to look for answers. And I remember I was 14 years old in the hospital. And I got this real red Gideon's Bible. And I thought it might have answers because I was really starting to ask questions about the purpose and meaning of life and really just get confused. And I was I started looking. And I remember reading... I opened up that little Gideon's Bible, the New Testament. I'm like, this is weird. I didn't get any of this. This is like, how is a person supposed to find any answer in this thing? It was like, all the stuff I didn't understand, I didn't even know what they were talking about. I remember closing it, but I was really intrigued by it, so I go open again, maybe try again and see. Now it's still weird. Still weird. I was drawn to it. It's like, there's that book, and I think that maybe there's got to be some answer in there, but it was just dead to me. Dead. And then, when I came to know the Lord, and God opened my eyes to see Jesus, and I saw who I was, the sinner before Him, desperately in need of salvation, and I saw that Jesus was presented to me as dying for my sins, and I believe. I remember that I believed, and I believed, and then... I was a new person. It was, I was completely different. I thought I had different thoughts. I had, I had different desires and things was, I was, things were changed. And I went and read the, the scriptures after that. I was like, whoa, whoa, that was the best thing ever. And I was like, I couldn't put it down. And I haven't stopped 32 years later. <laughs> it's like, it, it, the words of life. And I remember just like, 
and it's done everything to me. And I, obviously, I wish it was, I wish it was still just as intense as it was when, on the early days. But I tell you what, it, the Word of God transforms you. It awakens you. It teaches you. And I've been so, I've been so rebuked and corrected by this word that I've had to put it down. I was just trembling. Whoa, man, I'm in trouble. And then I, you know, I, I got to turn to the favorite passage about Jesus and the gospel and <laughs> read that one over and over again. And it has transformative effect. And it truly, uh, my experience has been, and, I, and this is testified million times over by people. The Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And it goes in and it, it is powerful. And it transforms. There's a famous story about the English ship Bounty. Commanded by Lieutenant William Bly. Journeyed to the South Pacific in 1787 to collect plants of the breadfruit tree. Now, I don't even... I'm, I read the story and I'm thinking, I don't even know what a breadfruit tree is. I should have Googled it, but... Sailors uh, signed on gladly, apparently, because they considered this voyage was a trip to paradise. So in having no second in command, Captain Bly appointed his young friend, Fletcher Christian, to the post. The bounty stayed in Tahiti six months, and the sailors, led by happy-go-lucky Fletcher Christian, enjoyed paradise to the full. When time came for departure, however, some of the men wanted to stay behind with their island girls. Three men trying to desert were flogged. The mood on the ship darkened, and on April 28, 1789, Fletcher Christian staged the most famous mutiny in history. Bly and his supporters were set adrift. He had it worked out, so he sent, got them put into a, their, um, we call those, a lifeboat, put them into a lifeboat and stuffed them with overloaded with, with materials for them to, like, farewell, and they sent them off to sea. But they, were, they miraculously say they navigated themselves 3,700 miles to Timor. No, I don't even know where Timor is, though. So. Never, never land, as far as I know. But the mutineers aboard the bounty began quarreling about what to do next. Christian returned to Tahiti, where he left some of the mutineers, kidnapped some women took some slaves and traveled a thousand miles to the uninhabited Pitcairn Island. There, the little group quickly unraveled. They distilled whiskey from a native plant. Drunkenness and fighting marked their colony. Disease and murder eventually took the lives of all the men except Ned Young and Alexander Smith. Young was an educated man and had been accepted as a leader on the island, with Smith as his friend and deputy. Young taught Smith to read using a Bible from the HMS Bounty, which had been presented to the ship by the Naval and Military Bible Society prior to their sailing from England. God took hold of Alexander Smith's heart as he learned the scriptures and changed him. He became a new man. When Young died of asthma six years later, Adams ruled the community. And here's his community, 11 women, 23 children. That's all, that's all that was left out of all the debauchery that was going on there. It was bad. He then started to teach them the Bible. 
and he had them follow the Christian way of life. He also built a school and taught all the children and educated them in the Scriptures. He used the Bible and the Bible alone to teach them how to read and to write. And the message of Christ so transformed the community's lives that 20 years later, in 1808, when the topaz topaz landed on the island, it found a happy Christian society, living in peace and prosperity, free from crime, disease, murder, and mutiny. It was completely transformed because this book was with them. There they were, stranded on an island, and these were some debauched, crazy animals. They opened this thing, and they got transformed. It changed everything. You know, there are plenty of books with wisdom, with decent philosophies and gripping qualities about them, but there's only one book only one book on the whole planet that can all by itself transform a life. You want to be transformed? Get into the Word and say, God, teach me. Speak to me. Reveal yourself to me. And watch what happens. You know, one thing I just want to close us with and leave us with is this. We are living in a day and age where we have got to get back to the point where we understand that this truly is the supreme word of God and not be afraid to stand on it. We need some good men and women who will stand up and say, thus says the Lord, knowing that you're going to get laughed at, knowing that you're going to get mocked, knowing that you're going to get shamed, and knowing that you could perhaps be thrown out. We've got to stop being so sheepish and shy and skittish. We need some boldness. We need to be able to, we need to get to the point where we have a shift of mindset. Now, when I say all this, we don't need jerks. We need gentle, kind, patient, loving people who will say in all humility, God has spoken. Thus says the Lord. And I know you're going to make fun of me. I know you're going to laugh at me. But thus says the Lord. And you know, I don't think this is ever going to happen until we get to the point where not only do we not care what the crowd says, not only do we not care what people think, but we really, we really take to heart when, what Jesus said in Matthew. Matthew, Matthew chapter 5 in the, in, the, um, in, the, in the Gospel of Matthew. Verses 11 through 12 says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. We've really got to believe that. And he goes on to say, Rejoice, not just believe it. He says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who are before you. Don't, I think sometimes we maybe, we expect the wrong thing. We expect that, yeah, we'll stand on God's word and then we'll be, we'll be given so much respect and honor. That's just the wrong way of thinking about it. No, we should actually expect, he says, Jesus says, hey, 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 hello. If they hated me, they're going to hate you also. The servant's not greater than the master. And he's trying to prepare his people. He says, you know, in actual fact, you need to get more prepared with the mindset of almost expecting, I'm going to get laughed at, I'm going to get mocked, I'm going to get ridiculed, but I'm going to stand on God's word. And, and see it, we need to see it as a badge of honor. 
You know, today it's a badge of honor if you could stand there and people are so proud that they can give their scientific proof for something. And good, great for them. I think scientific proofs are wonderful. But it needs to be so that we come to the place where it's a badge of honor to say, God says. And everybody goes, <laughs> who's the idiot? Who's the ignoramus? I am. God says. The word of God says. And he says some really tough things. Really tough things. And we know we don't always want to embrace them, do we? We don't always want to embrace these things. Why? Man, I don't want to go through Pablo with that one. That one will get you in trouble. Woo! You're right. It will. But may God grant us grace so that we actually love this and love him way more than we love the approval of men. And, in, and actually, in comparison, we despise the approval of men compared to the approval of God and standing on his word. May we be a people who just love it and, and get it that much and, and get in the ring and say, okay, throw your punches. God needs to, especially in this age, day and age, raise that kind of people up, and may he do so. Amen. Father, we're so very thankful that this is indeed your word and you gave it to us and it's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, that it's, it's proven to be your word and from you internally because of all the, the things that you've declared that would come to pass and indeed they have come to pass. And not one jot or tittle of your word, nothing will not come to pass. Your word is the most sure thing there is. Oh, Lord, I pray for these people, every, everybody here, and I ask that you would mightily work in their hearts, in their lives, and make them bold as lions, standing on your word, willingly taking hits for the sake of it, and can rejoicing and be glad, and knowing that the reward is great, knowing that it's an honor and a blessing. Have mercy on us, O oh God, we ask in Jesus. Amen.